doesn't matter where you attend an event in our city, whether it's at Bell MTS Place or uh, the convention center or any event that we have here, one of the things that happens at the start of any events is that the speaker, whether it's over a, over the PA system or whether it's the mayor or any other official getting up, reminds us that we are on Treaty 1 land. My next guest says that may not be the case, that we may not, in fact, be on Treaty 1 land. And this is sort of runs contrary to the current narrative, but Brian Giesbrecht is a retired judge. He's now a senior fellow at the Frontier Centre for Public Policy and joins us today. Brian Giesbrick, thanks for taking some time today. Oh, no problem. Good. Okay, so you dispute that, if, you know, if I'm at the convention centre or Bell MTS Place or any other spot in town, and I get up and say, look, I want to thank, acknowledge that we're on Treaty 1 land, would you dispute that? Uh, yes, I, I, I would. I think that... Uh, um, uh, the history is very clear that at least the uh, part of the country we're living in, uh, governed by the number of treaties, the land was, was transferred over to the uh, government of Canada some time ago. Uh, these treaties were all done after Confederation and uh, around the time of the Indian Act. And um, uh, the deal at that point was that uh, um, reserves would be set aside for Indigenous people uh, who wanted to move there. Not all Indigenous people did, in fact, move onto reserves. Uh, some were uh, simply um, uh, able to, to, to uh, live away from those reserves. But the idea that, that all of Canada is, um, is treaty land, um, I, uh, I do dispute, and I also think that the idea of telling people that their land is, uh, is treaty land is part of a... Uh, um, uh, a broader uh, plan. All right, well, and I'll well, elaborate on that plan. If you okay, know. yeah, and, and I'll get, I'll certainly get to that. And I want yeah. I'm going to circle back to the Indian Act too, uh, in just a little while. But, yeah. but, but if, in the sense that that these lands were ceded to the crown, in that sense, they are it's treaty land. Well, it's it's. Uh, I'm well, sort of I'm my, making a pretty. Fine, I'm putting a very her, fine point on it here. I realize. Well, where I take issue is, is, is the idea that, that um, um, there is some obligation, some continuing obligation to people who have, uh, 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 who have previously uh, uh, lived on the land. If, in fact, I have an obligation to uh, somebody who has previously occupied my land, that means my uh, title to my house and my property is not really free and clear, as I've always supposed. So when people, for instance, are silently listening to this acknowledgement that they're on treaty land, they have to understand that they're also talking about their own property, their own houses, their own land. And uh, uh, that should make them a bit uneasy, because if you're uh, acknowledging that uh, you don't have full ownership, that you have some sort of an obligation to... Uh, uh, to pay some sort of rent or whatever uh, unspecified um, 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 uh, amount or sum, uh, I think that uh, that certainly makes me uneasy. I note, by the way, Jeff, that the Ontario Medical Association very recently refused to uh, uh, to use this uh, uh, "We Are on Treaty Land" opening, and they're taking a lot of criticism for it. But I think they've done a little thinking, and I think some other people will as well because. Um, there are some. Um, there are a lot of implications in telling, uh, uh, you know, acknowledging that we are on treaty land. It may, in fact, mean that we are saying, well, um, we should be 
um, um, paying some continuing uh, amounts, or we should be renegotiating all of the all of the treaties that are now in existence. It may cause huge uncertainty in the business environment, uh, which we're already seeing in the pipeline situation and the Manitoba Hydro situation, etc. So yes, I have. I'm very uneasy about uh, listening to that, and and. Um, uh, well, Brian, what part of the treaties then, what part of the numbered treaties would lead someone to believe that, that we are in fact on treaty land, you know, here in Winnipeg, treaty one land? What, what would lead somebody to believe that? What's the wording in the treaties that would lead us to think that? Well, the, the, the wording, and I've read these treaties and everybody can, they're fairly straightforward documents and anybody can read them. And basically there were, they, the land was, was transferred uh, to the government for, uh, for for certain sums. In the case of some of the treaties, it was uh, $5 a year, which sounds to us to, to be a very small amount. But in in, in the, uh, say, ni- uh, you know, 1872 or so, that was, that was a large, you know, that was considered a large amount. And other consideration was given. There were other promises given as well. It wasn't just the $5 a year. Uh, but basically, the understanding clearly of the people who were having these treaties uh, signed was that uh, the land would then belong uh, to the people the land was ceded to. What the government at that time wanted to do, of course, historically, is uh, they wanted uh, to be able to build the railroad across the country. They wanted to bring in settlers and give them free title to their uh, free and clear title to their land. So they had a, a very strong interest in wanting to uh, to settle the land ownership question so that they could get on with developing the country. Okay, so, uh, but is there nothing in those numbered treaties that, that acknowledges that, that this is in fact indigenous land or has it all, was it all in fact transferred to the Crown? Well, you, you, my, said the, you said the, uh, we should make the distinction between the government and the crown, shouldn't we, Brian? Isn't that, that's an important distinction, uh, isn't it? it, yes, it, 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 it? Yes, yes, and I don't want to start, uh, to, to start uh, um, talking in technical language here, but, right. but the basic um, um, uh, thrust of these agreements was to um, set aside reserves where Indigenous people would live and then um, for consideration and then uh, leave the land free and clear so that the, the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, government could then get, get on with the job of, 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 uh, of building uh, the right. railways and settling the, uh, uh, the country. And, of course, the settlers, that's us, uh, then went on to uh, uh, buying our own homes and our own property. And uh, every one of us, I believe, uh, certainly assumes that we have uh, um, uh, free and clear title uh, to our property with no obligation to any of the previous owners of the, uh, of the land. So where does this come from then? How, how did we get to this point? Well, I, I believe that um, my belief is, of course, the, the this is your treaty land is a direct recommendation of the TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And uh, I believe that what is happening is that there is a big push right now to try to, to not only renegotiate uh, treaties, but also effectively rewrite, rewrite uh, uh, treaties. And um, uh, I, I believe that uh, the uh, this is your treaty uh, or you are on treaty land is, is part of that uh, fairly sophisticated campaign. And the idea is to... Uh, um, have uh, Canadians uh, accept the idea that uh, 
that that more land should be uh, uh, either given or else compensation be, should be given instead of uh, actual transfers of the land. Is there an argument to be made for that, given given the past failure to to live up to some of the terms of our former treaties? Well, that's another uh, <clears throat> that's another one of the common. Um, uh, views that uh, Canada has failed to to live up to the terms of its uh, uh, agreements with Indigenous people, and I take issue with that as well. I take issue with the whole notion that the answer to the problems of Indigenous people are more treaties. What we've already seen is uh, in um, uh, transferring large sums of money on a continuing basis to Indigenous communities this is not the answer to the problem. The problem, the the answer to the problem, uh, is, is in one word, jobs. It's uh, um, having chronically unemployed people, particularly from the more remote places, uh, with uh, with uh, with a job uh, mm. and a way of getting into the Canadian economy. Too many Indigenous people are just on the margins and have never really uh, participated to the full extent. So I do not believe that uh, more treaties. And, and more money for uh, for some people, uh, the privileged people who um, who put themselves in a position to receive it, is the answer to the the problem of indigenous people. I think that the problem is having meaningful jobs for everybody. You know, apart from our recollections of Burton Cummings so passionately singing the line "Share the Land," what what does that phrase mean now? Well, I'm not exactly sure, Jeff. I, I'm 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 not sure. Sure, I I think we are all being uh, pretty hypocritical when we when we start talking about sharing the land because uh, I you know I as a as a landowner as a house owner do not want to share my land. I I want to to keep my land. I worked hard for it, and uh, I do not acknowledge that I uh, I owe. Um, any my previous owner of this house, for instance, I don't acknowledge that I owe, owe that person any duty, and I do not uh, um, uh, acknowledge that I should be um, uh, owing some sort of financial duty to anybody who's used the property. And that's the whole beauty of, of land ownership. And not all countries are able to uh, say that they have a system of secure land ownership. I think it's a very important. Uh, um, you know, part of being a Canadian. And I think that's sort of uh, a bit under threat with this idea of everybody should share the land. Most people, when they utter that phrase, share the land, are thinking about sharing somebody else's land. They're not thinking about sharing their own land. I want to take a pause and come back, uh, Brian Giesbrick, and pick up on, on something you touched on early in this conversation, and that is the Indian Act itself. Brian Giesbrick is a retired judge. He's a senior fellow at the Frontier Centre for Public Policy. We'll be right back. Brian Giesbrecht is not exactly a lone voice crying in the wilderness, but is a contrarian when it comes to the current narrative that we all live on treaty land, that we're, this is the, that, that, that somehow we don't own the land that we live on. And uh, he's a retired judge and a senior fellow at the Frontier Center for Public Policy. And we've parsed a little bit of uh, what is contained in the numbered treaties, but we're being told before every event, before every uh, ceremony, that we're, on, on fact, on Treaty 1 land. And uh, it, that's that's something that uh, Brian disputes, having gone through the treaties. And, uh, Brian, I wanted to circle back, though, to the Indian Act itself. Is there anybody in this country who thinks that the Indian Act is a good document that ought to be preserved? I, I don't believe so. I've been writing for years now about the Indian Act and... and uh arguing that we should have been uh, rid of this thing 
50 years ago. That's when Pierre Trudeau uh, actually tried to do it in 1969. And what he said is that, uh, and what I believe is that we have to have uh, uh, get to a system where a one set of laws for every Canadian, every Canadian is equal, and we all have an equal uh, uh, worth as citizens. And uh, for that bit of common sense, he was uh, he was shouted down. And I believe, I, I don't uh, think I'm, I'm being harsh here, I think that the only people who really want to keep the Indian Act in place right now are the uh, uh, people who are financially benefiting from the Indian Act being there. Because the Indian Act is, is, a, is a, a, um, um, a racist and uh, outdated piece of legislation that treats Indigenous people like uh, children, it says that they're not like other people. They shouldn't be able to own their own property. It's demeaning in many ways. It should have been gone long ago, and particularly the the reserve system should have been completely um, uh, done away with. We should have no such thing. If if we had uh, followed Pierre's uh, uh, Trudeau's advice in 1969, we would have been in a, in a far better place today. And the irony to me is that it's his son who wants to keep this going, not only keep it going, but expand it as well. Well, let me ask you then, Brian, at Bono, who benefits from the Indian Act? Well, uh, the money is just huge. There are billions of dollars involved, and so this doesn't sound like some sort of a racist diatribe. Uh, probably most of the people who are really benefiting financially uh, are not even indigenous. I mean... Uh, one of the examples, the lawyers, for instance, and I don't blame anybody for going after money. That's what people do. But one of the well-known examples is uh, a law firm that made more than, billed more than $50 million for the, the residential school cases. Well, there are a lot of law firms that, that, uh, that are billing huge amounts now for the inquiries, and now this next one coming up, the 60 scoop, and the missing women's one, and whatever comes next. These are huge money makers, and uh, universities benefit uh, incredibly. Whole departments are are um, uh, are being created uh, in some cases for things that don't even exist. The University of Manitoba has, I am told, uh, a faculty called the uh, the Faculty of of Indigenous Science. Well, there's no such thing as Indigenous Science, and that's no disrespect to the knowledge, you know, oral knowledge accumulated for years, et cetera. But there's not even any such thing. So uh, just, that's just two examples, anthropologists, consultants, and we don't even have one Indian Affairs Department now. We've got two. I don't know what their proper names are, but these are huge departments, people earning large amounts of money, and many and some people paying no income tax. So there are people, many, many people, who are financially benefiting from the system. They don't want to see it go. I don't want to impute evil motives uh, to them, but there are a lot of people with vested interests, vested financial interests in keeping this act alive. Well, let's, let's face it. We're all corruptible people, I guess. I wonder if the money's big enough, right, Brian? <laughs> I suppose. You know? Well, okay. But, okay, so given that then, why has there been virtually no political will to try to dismantle this act, to try to dismantle this, this massive industry that, that keeps on... That, that perpetrates this this level of poverty among so many of our First Nations people, because you know, the, for all of the money that's been spent, for all of the billable hours, the, the people on reserve, especially, don't seem to be a whole lot better off. 
Well, uh, and no, they're not. Uh, one study shows that despite the uh, an increase in spending of about uh, um, you know 500 uh, percent, people on on the actual uh, poor residents of uh, uh, First Nations communities are no better off than they were in 1982, and that should shock us all because the amount of money spent is is incredible. Well, I would I would uh, just have to say that that the 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 the, 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 the people who are financially benefiting uh, want to keep this alive and they've convinced this particular prime minister that he's doing a good thing by not only keeping this act in place but um, uh, entrenching it he's publicly uh, and expanding it he's publicly publicly boasted that uh, he will um, uh, arrange things with legislation so that no future prime minister will be able to to uh, to change this system, and I think that's shocking. He is a nice man. He's very well-meaning. He's been convinced by these chiefs that he's doing a, uh, doing the right thing. In my opinion, he's going in exactly the wrong direction. He should be beginning this very difficult process of dismantling this. Um, incredibly corrupt and inefficient system. What we should be going for is a system that eventually will lead to Indigenous people uh, having exactly the uh, same set of rights as every other Canadian. Brian Giesbrick, thanks very much for this today. I appreciate the conversation. Okay, Jeff. Well, uh, I I think this is the first of, of a number of conversations we need to have about this. We need to as Canadians admit that we can have some adult conversations, even though they're, they're kind of tough sometimes. Well, I agree with you, Jeff. All right. Brian Giesbrick is a retired judge. He's now a senior fellow at the Frontier Centre for Public Policy.